0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: So far, the crisis has lacked a defining image. No villainous despot or smoldering ruins to inspire a national mobilization. Step forward Mike Lukovich, a Pulitzer-winning cartoonist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. His latest drawing... Shows a huddle of medics in white coats and scrubs, their bent backs form a triangle as they hoist the Star Spangled Banner. It's a tribute to the famous photo taken on Iwo Jima in 1945, and a recognition that the trenches in this battle are the labs and hospitals. With 227 days to go, this is checks and balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's U.S. editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. This week, can the U.S. healthcare system cope with COVID-19? Donald Trump says he now considers himself a wartime president. But for now, the enemy remains invisible. Only 4% of Americans know someone who's tested positive for COVID-19 the toll of this war is hidden away in emergency rooms and ICUs. In this episode, we'll figure out how well-prepared the frontline health system is. We'll talk about testing, hear from a former head of the CDC and check in with New Rochelle, New York, where one of the first outbreaks of the coronavirus started two weeks ago. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fasman, The Washington Correspondent. Charlotte, let's start with you. Last week, you very kindly hosted the podcast because I was sick. You were cooped up in your apartment in New York, entertaining two children while taking care of your husband and simultaneously covering global energy markets and hosting a podcast. How are things looking your end?
2: It's pretty chaotic within my apartment. My husband is still quarantined. We don't know whether he had COVID. It's been really difficult to get a test still, and we'll talk about that more later. I've taken this opportunity to try to indoctrinate my children in the ways of uh, old musicals, and is actually kind of they're a little bit of a gift that gives on giving because my son watched Oklahoma, and now he wants to listen to the Oklahoma soundtrack and use our sofa as a trampoline. And then he wants to run around the apartment pretending to be a cowboy. So there are ways that you can use a little screen time to then launch a range of other activities.
1: That's a pro tip. That's worth listening to the podcast just to glean that. Thank you, Charlotte. John, you are somewhat locked down in upstate New York, not too
3: far from New Rochelle. How are things your end? Things are pretty good. What Charlotte just described sounds extremely familiar. As I'm doing the podcast right now, my younger son is writing a story about a snake gambler who cheats and uh, my older one is writing about Greek gods, but that is just a brief respite from an incredible deluge of screen time. So that's what we're doing. Good stuff. Okay,
1: let's start by going into a bit more depth on something you guys started talking about last week, which is COVID testing. The shortage of tests is an issue all over the world, but it seems to be a particular problem at the moment in the US, which is still trying to catch up from some early mistakes. I asked Alok Jha, who's The Economist's science correspondent, to give us some context.
4: Well, there's no sugarcoating it. It looks pretty bad. Because normally speaking, whenever there's an outbreak anywhere in the world, the CDC is the place you go for leadership. They have the best tests, they do everything properly, and it just runs really nicely as a result. There have been lots of reasons why the CDC hasn't done such a good job this time, including sending out faulty tests at the beginning. The World Health Organization specified a set of protocols for the genetic tests that everyone's using now for um, coronavirus back in January, and the CDC decided that it was going to produce its own version, Um, and every lab in the world has to produce its own version and thinks they can do something better, but they just made a few errors with the chemicals involved and it meant that they were getting bad results. Um, So that just set them back. And then there, there's the issues around regulation. Um, the Food and Drug Administration has to approve any sorts of tests. There are emergency regulations they can put in, but it just takes a long time. Uh, and there's a resistance to anything that isn't produced locally, essentially, um, in the States. Uh, and for good reason. And often, like I said, they have the best tests. They have the best ideas. They just sort of drop the ball at this time, which means ultimately that the US has tested a lot less than it should have done. And we'll probably see huge spikes as a result of its sort of delay of action.
1: And you've been writing a bit about the race to develop better tests because the tests that we currently have take a while to deliver a result, and also presumably one of the things we really need is a test for who's already had COVID.
4: Yeah, exactly. There is a bit of a race. The current tests, what they do is they look for viral genetic material. So the COVID virus is an RNA virus, which is a sort of string, single-stranded version of DNA. And um, what you do is you look for sections of that that um, are signatures of that virus and that virus alone. And the genetic tests can identify those, and they're the ones you see being used all over the world right now. with the mouth swabs. But they take about a day or so, maybe two days to return results. And you have to centralise the laboratories that will do all the um, analysis. What you want is a blood test um, which looks for antibodies. And so you just drop a few drops of blood onto um, a test and it will tell you whether you've ever had this infection. And that's very useful because first of all it's very cheap and simple and results will come in, in minutes rather than days. And you can also then tell who's been infected in your community. So it does two useful things. One, it shows you how far it's spread, how many people are asymptomatic as a result and so on. The other thing it does is that if you're immune, it means you can kind of go about a bit more daily life, especially healthcare workers, because there's obviously a problem for them getting infected. So that's coming, though. The CDC in the US has two types of uh, blood tests that it's but it takes a long time to confirm whether these tests really work properly. Um, and what you don't want to do is rush it and then get lots and lots of false results and then base strategies on, you know, false results.
1: When you say a long time, what sort of time period are we talking?
4: Well, um, w- probably weeks, weeks to months, because no one is going to be slowing this down. And in fact, an American company already come up with a... Um, a sort of a biochip that looks a bit like a pregnancy test, actually, sort of a strip of white plastic, which you put some blood on, and it tests for several of the antibody responses to to COVID-19. They've been using it in China already. It's not officially approved for use in the States yet, but it's only a matter of time because it'll be so useful when it is there.
1: So I think we have a good sense, having seen America's early response to this, what a bad testing regime looks like. What does a good testing regime look like?
4: So I think that if we just look at the evidence of places where the infection has spiked and is starting to flatten out and maybe even decline probably the best example is South Korea the 250 or so thousand tests done there including you've probably seen pictures of the drive through tests people sort of driving through being tested on on the on the road essentially and that has allowed that country to understand the spread of the virus to control quarantine it 's a really good example of what you can do and um, it 's a brute force approach though they 've spent a lot of money a lot of effort to do that and they took the decision early and they just went with it and it seems to be working
1: so look, America got off to a slow start here but it 's not too late to recover given the strength of scientific expertise in in the United States
4: so I think that 's right the Americans still have the best infrastructure for managing epidemics in the world because they've got the the best scientists there and they've got the best technology. Um, They've had a bad start, but the scientific weight that they carry might just get them around it. They might be able to bend the curve in a way that other places might not. And even though they made the mistake, they still do have the best infectious disease people in the world.
1: Alok, thank you very much. You're very welcome. If you're interested in the molecular biology of COVID and want to hear more from Alok, check out Babbage this week. That's The Economist's science podcast. You can find it in The Economist radio feed. Charlotte, this question of testing and testing availability is not just a theoretical one for you, because I know you've been waiting and trying to get a test for your husband to figure out whether he does indeed have COVID-19. What do you make of Alloc's assessment, which is relatively upbeat, I think, compared with some of the things I've read and heard?
2: It's amazing how quickly the conversation moves as we try to contain or or limit the damage of COVID-19. I mean, Just a week ago, I was hoping that testing would ramp up and my husband would be able to get a test. It seems that that is occurring. You hear announcements of thousands of tests being added, for instance, to New York, where I live. At the same time, there's been a shift in the government's emphasis because it is acknowledged that we simply won't have enough tests to go around for everyone who has COVID symptoms. And so there's much more of a of an emphasis being placed on social distancing and to assume if you have COVID-like symptoms that you do have COVID and remain at home. I think that the idea Trump said earlier in March, everyone will get a test, everyone will need a test, will get a test. That seems increasingly unlikely.
1: John Fassman, does Alloxview match what you've been hearing from New Rochelle, which is just down the road from where you're talking to us from?
3: Yeah, there's been a ramp up in testing, but a ramp up from a very slow start. And ramping up means that there's a drive through place there that tests, I think, 700 people a day. And they're looking to ramp it up to about 7,000 people a day. And New York's governor has warned that that means we'll see a huge increase in cases, presumably. One other concern that Alec didn't mention, but that people are really worried about is not just tests, it's equipment. It's having enough respirators and ventilators and protective gear. That is something I've heard people concerned about in New Rochelle and Westchester as well. Okay, well, we'll talk a
1: bit more about New Rochelle in a minute because John Fazman's been talking to some folks there. Charlotte, let's just step back a bit. You used to cover healthcare in America for The Economist. What new information are we getting about how the system works, how it works well, how it works less well, the kind of incentives that are in the U.S. healthcare system when it comes to dealing with a public health crisis like this?
2: Obamacare, which turns ten, it was passed ten years ago on March twenty third expanded that makes ins- me feel very old I know doesn't it it expanded health insurance was the main thing that it did it had some measures within it that thought about changing the actual structure of Healthcare, But essentially, it was a huge insurance bill to extend health insurance to those who don't have it and give them access to America's health system, which is enormous, fragmented, and complicated. It's largely private, and it still remains largely a fee-for-service system. So you pay for each health care service that you receive. Hospitals are bracing for this to be a problem for quite a long time. And so you see something happening at hospitals, which is similar to what's happened elsewhere in the American economy, which is that hospitals are trying to make the money that they can now, pack in these elective services now, ahead of the influx of COVID patients that they expect. And you saw that even in, in different ways. You know, people continuing to go out to restaurants, Trump's slow to have strong communication about limiting air travel, about limiting mass gatherings and so forth, where people are sort of trying to pack in their old way of making money, or their old way of doing business before acknowledging the hardship that was to come. And that in turn makes it harder to deal with COVID and makes COVID a bigger and more acute problem
1: on a slightly more upbeat note charlotte though there's been lots of reporting about the number of hospital beds in america if you look at the system overall america actually has Proportionally, compared with most other rich countries, an awful lot of ICU beds. So, in this week's Economist Report, there are three times as many ICU beds per person in America as there are in Italy. So, in some senses, because there's so much money sloshing around it, there is some spare capacity in the system that you don't see in some other healthcare systems. So, it's not all doom and gloom from a system point of view.
2: That may be right. But it's not like these hospitals are empty. They are filled with patients. And there's a risk of staff becoming demoralized as they feel that the PPE that they need is being directed towards services that aren't absolutely essential.
1: That's a fair point. OK, thank you both. We will hear from one of the top public health experts in America in just a moment. Meanwhile, The Economist's cover story this week is on the economic effects of the global shutdown. There's a cover leader about this awful trade-off that countries are going to have to face between protecting people and stopping their economies from going into freefall. You can get all our COVID-19 coverage by heading to economist.com coronavirus. Subscribe if you haven't already. There's lots to read in The Economist during a lockdown, not just on COVID-19. So please do subscribe. Economist.com slash pod 2020 is the place to go to receive 12 issues for $12 or £12. Both of those links are in the show notes for this podcast. To dig deeper into how the U.S. public health system has responded to COVID so far and what needs to be done next, we decided to pause the history segment for a week and call an economist reader instead. Dr. Tom Frieden has spent a career in public health, first in New York and later as head of the CDC. He's now president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, where he works on preventing epidemics. He's been sounding alarm bells in Congress and elsewhere about the new coronavirus for weeks. He's particularly concerned about the lack of
5: ventilators in American hospitals. I've been worried about this for more than 15 years. Ever since we really began planning for pandemic influenza, it was clear that this would be a choke point, if you will, a rate-limiting step to our ability to save lives. And given how long people with COVID are ill in intensive care, it can be two or three weeks, there is no city in the world that would have enough intensive care capacity. I'm interested that you say that you've been worrying about the lack of ventilators for 15 years. So,
1: what prevented America and other countries from acting on recommendations that people like you
5: have been making for so long? Let me make one general point and then get into the specifics of ventilators. The general point is that public health is a best buy. When governments invest in public health, you can drive down healthcare costs, you can protect people better, and in fact, it's I think, an indicator of good governance. Singapore has, we think, perhaps the model response to COVID. They're still struggling with it, but they've really handled it well. And that's an example of a well-functioning government that focuses on doing the right thing. And globally, we are woefully underprepared for not just this, but the next one. And the next one is inevitable. Now to get back to your very specific question about ventilators. A lot has been done. So when I was health commissioner of New York City, we bought a uh, stockpile of ventilators that could be taken out and used. We then figured out how to keep those used regularly by using them to transport critically ill patients so health staff would learn how to use them. And um, when I got to CDC, this was at the top of my uh, agenda for what's called the strategic national stockpile, which used to be managed by CDC. We commissioned a few companies to make a a durable, portable, simple, inexpensive ventilator. There was some commercial problem. The product didn't come out on the market. They have since come out with portable ventilators that are battery operable and able to be used. Our concept was then to buy tens of thousands of those, but I think that hasn't happened. Right now, the focus has to be on implementing what are called social distancing interventions to flatten the curve so we don't have a peak of cases that is so high that it overwhelms our healthcare system.
1: Let's talk a little bit about testing. I think probably most of our listeners now are familiar with the delays to testing in America because of the, I would say, uncharacteristic mistakes made at the CDC, an organization that you know really well. What's your view of how far America's been able to catch up since then?
5: We are still uh, not caught up. And really, there were three separate problems here. And uh, the first was CDC. There was a problem with their test kit. It's quite surprising. Before I joined CDC, when I was New York City Health Commissioner, the H1N1 influenza pandemic hit. This was a new virus, first discovered in mid-April. Before the end of April of 2009, CDC had developed a test, validated it, gotten it approved by the U.S. FDA, and three days later, on May 1, two weeks after the virus was discovered, began shipping out a million tests to every state in the U.S. and then 140 countries around the world. I know because I was in New York City when the test kits came, and I know because when I was CDC director, as I traveled around to dozens of countries, Many, many of them thanked me profusely for the test kits we had provided. So it was quite surprising that this happened, and I think that should be looked at. Uh, There were two other problems, though. Hospitals in the U.S. developed their own tests, and the Food and Drug Administration, which regulates them, didn't allow them to do that for far too long. And that's important because... Those tests enable very rapid turnaround in the facility where patients are being cared for. And the third component is the private sector, which in places like South Korea really ramped up early, was not involved until recently. So the issue is not just the number of tests, but the turnaround time. I've been uh, in communication with a a longtime friend and colleague who's an emergency room doctor here, and he's saying it's impossible. It's taking a day or two for tests to come back, It's just not tenable to treat people safely in this environment. It seems like the moment
1: of complacency about COVID-19 in America, which was there a few weeks ago, is past. A lot of people are preparing themselves for a period of social distancing, maybe even lockdown that goes on for months, maybe even a year. To some extent, it seems to me that the sort of worst case scenarios people find relatively easy to imagine... Is it possible to paint a scenario on the other end of the spectrum that's realistic? If things go well and according to plan, what would that
5: look like? South Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan have contained this. And the best case scenario is containment, where you might have blips and clusters of cases, but you quickly respond and close them. China is getting ready for the possibility that they will have to live with this as a seasonal disease uh, indefinitely and until and unless we have a vaccine and a treatment, which would be very helpful, might come in before a vaccine. This is uh, a, an enormously challenging uh, situation, and we have to use this moment not only to save lives now, but to protect all of us better in the future, because we're all connected. And this is a moment for global solidarity. Dr. Frieden, folks like you who've worked on public
1: health for a long time have long known that a pandemic was a possibility and have sort of planned accordingly. Now that it's here, is it playing out in the way that you imagined when you sat down and did modelling exercises with colleagues, or does it feel completely different?
5: Every epidemic is different. And I think the, the greatest gap, the one that I'm most concerned about, is the gap in actionable knowledge about this coronavirus. We still don't know, three months in, whether children spread it. We still don't know to what extent spread from asymptomatic people is important. We still don't know how we can best protect healthcare workers. We still don't know which people are most medically vulnerable and most likely to die. And the investment in public health that we need has to include an investment in what we call field epidemiology. These are the disease detectives that can figure out these questions. They're not easy questions to answer, but they're questions that are answerable, and they're answerable with trained staff, good laboratories, good public health entities that provide the institutional backdrop for that. One of the things we've seen in various parts of the U.S. certainly is the sidelining of the best public health experts.
1: John Fasman, Tom Frieden holds up Singapore as a model example of how coronavirus can be dealt with. That's a place you know well because you were based there. What have you been keeping track of what's been going on in Singapore?
3: I have. What they have done really well is contact tracing. So, teams of investigators there When someone tests positive, they have two hours to sort of map out where that person has been, who they've seen, who they've talked to, what their travel patterns are like. And that's really how they've managed to contain the disease without massive social distancing or a lockdown. And Singapore has a history of public good social engineering like this, and it serves them really well in a crisis like this. It's also towards the authoritarian end of the spectrum,
1: isn't it? I mean, how replicable do you think that sort of
3: tracing would be in New York State, say? I think it's almost impossible to do here just because, as you say, they are a, you know, it's an authoritarian state. And it's a benevolent authoritarian state, but government there really has much more access to people's lives and people trust the government much more than they do here. So that sort of thing is essential to do. Contact tracing is essential. I don't know that America is able to do it as effectively as Singapore is.
1: Charlotte, something that comes through quite strongly there from Tom Friedman is that America hasn't made the investments in public health that it ought to have, hasn't taken public health seriously enough for the past decade or two decades. Um, What do you make of that criticism?
2: Public health in large part is about dealing with problems before they become emergencies. And America is very good generally, as we spoke a bit about last week, at dealing with emergencies, dealing with very complicated cases. It's pretty good at dealing with the enormous number of people, for instance, who develop the chronic conditions that accompany obesity, including heart disease and diabetes, and not particularly good at preventing obesity. There's been sort of a decline in the degree to which we, as a society, value uh, the essential services that healthcare workers provide, both culturally and in how much they're paid, and you see a shortage in staffing needs across the spectrum of healthcare workers, and that uh, is not precisely what Dr. Frieden was referring to, but I think it dovetails with what he was saying that, you know, on the one hand, America is not very good at thinking in a big and ambitious and comprehensive way about prevention, it's also not particularly good at thinking about the vital role that health service workers provide in keeping Americans safe. And all of these things are very much on display in the current crisis.
1: Thanks guys, we'll be back in a moment to hear about what the response looks like in one of the first places in America to experience an outbreak.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: John Fasman, you live pretty close to one of the epicenters of the COVID outbreak in the U.S. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: New Rochelle is a commuter town on the east side of Westchester County. It's on the Long Island Sound. It's a decent sized town. And I live on the other side of the county, about, about 20 minutes away. New Rochelle is where the first cluster of cases appeared. It has since been overtaken by New York. But of course, New York is a city of about 8 million people. And New Rochelle is a city of a little under 80,000. So the cluster is extremely intense there. I talked to the mayor, Noam Branson. He's about two weeks ahead of where everyone else was in America. So he has been dealing with this crisis a bit longer. And I talked to him about what things look like on the ground there. How are you feeling? How are you holding up?
6: Uh, I'm, uh, surviving on, uh, adrenaline, coffee, and M&Ms.
3: <laughs> and, and how about the community?
6: Um, as well as can be under the circumstances. People are demonstrating a level of, uh, concern that is, uh, proportionate to the challenge we're facing, but it, it has not strayed into panic or hysteria. New Rochelle gradually emerged as a cluster of the virus, one of the largest in the state and in the nation. Unique measures were put in place in New Rochelle involving the closure of schools, the closure of houses of worship, and the limitation of large gatherings. Today, just one week later, after the imposition of those rules, they look mild because they have since been overtaken and exceeded by statewide standards that are even more stringent.
3: And how is the county's healthcare care system coping, do you think?
6: So far, so good, because we haven't yet hit the wave of hospitalizations that all the public health experts are forecasting. The concern is that we'll see a surge and that if it comes too rapidly, it'll overwhelm our healthcare care capacity. And that's why everyone is so intently focused on slowing the spread of the virus.
3: How is your supplies? Are you offer drive-through testing at this point, is that right? Just to be clear, when you say
6: you, that's the state of New York. Okay. They have cited their first drive-through facility within New Rochelle for the reasons we discussed earlier. It seems to be functioning smoothly. It, it uh, certainly has greatly increased the volume of testing capacity.
3: What sort of help have you received from the state and federal governments, and, and do you think it's been adequate?
6: The state and county have been outstanding partners. They are the entities which have the public health expertise. We have in almost every regard, taken direction from them. My connection with the federal government has been more limited. I did hear from Vice President Pence, which I appreciated, but our day-to-day working relationship is really with state and county officials.
3: And are there things that, that state, county, and federal governments are not doing that you would like them to do?
6: My observation will be the same as everyone's observation. We need more personal protective equipment, especially for health care workers. We need to ramp up testing capacity, and without a doubt, we will need uh, dramatic economic assistance. The secondary effects of the virus on our economy and on our institutions will be enormously impactful.
3: And it sounds as though they may last quite a while.
6: Yes. I don't think there's any doubt that this will be a challenge like no other. Not only in its intensity, but also in its duration, and all of us are going to have to adjust to a very long and very uncomfortable new normal.
3: As the mayor pointed out, public health in New York is a state and county responsibility. So, just like Mayor Bramson has been ahead of the curve, so has Westchester's county executive George Latimer. I spoke to him as well. I'm very impressed by the public health nurses. You see their dedication—that
7: they would go out, they would put on the PPE suits to be protected from the virus. And they go to people's homes day after day, collecting swabs, and their, their manner was not affected by it. They didn't look like, oh my God, I got the worst job in the world, I can't wait to get out of this, or you, know, you should praise me, I'm great. They had a very matter-of-fact, professional way of approaching things. And when you spin that out to a lot of other people that have to respond to this thing, I'm impressed by the nature of people who really do
3: care about the people that they're serving. And, and, and that's, I think, what's impressive. And what are your biggest worries? Are you, do you have enough equipment? Do you have enough people? What are you concerned about? What's keeping you well, I'm up at gonna night?
7: i be honest with you. Now, John, we worry about everything. The contagion has uh, exploded. The death toll has risen in a dramatic, if not scary way. <clears throat> so I'm worried right now about all of those things. We're going to certainly try and make a strong effort. But since we don't know the size and scope that this thing could be,
3: you have to take this with um, uh, quite a bit of humility. Let me ask one last question. I think that other yeah. county executives, other county chairs may well be in the position that you're in now in the coming days and weeks. What advice would you give to them?
7: I would just say start by trusting the science. Don't worry about the uh, political realities of things. They'll fall into place. And I would, uh, I would certainly say, and we're trying to do this ourselves, think two weeks ahead. Don't just think about what gets you through this day. Think about where you might be in two weeks and what do you have to do today because two weeks from now, it'll be too late.
3: I will say one person I didn't talk to, but who I think has been quite good in this crisis is, is New York's governor, is Andrew Cuomo. All the qualities that make him difficult to deal with under normal times, the sort of emotive imperiousness, are really good in a crisis because he is decisive and he's very humane. And I think he's one reason why New York has responded so effectively. John, I was struck listening to the local officials you interviewed
1: by how America's decentralized system can, at times of crisis, be a strength. I mean, we're used to thinking of it as a weakness, I suppose. But when the federal government is asleep at the wheel, as the federal government was in the early stages of this crisis, America's local and state governments can step up. And in a sense, you know, if everything is overly centralized, you have a single point of failure. And if a government takes a bad decision, then it has ramifications nationwide. At least America's system is a bit more supple and, and flexible. And those local officials
3: are able to do what they need to do. I think that's exactly right. The decentralization of American political power at a time like this, when the federal government's response has been so incompetent, can be a strength. You have local officials really stepping it up. And that was a point made by one of the people I spoke with this week, Aziz Jha, who is director of Harvard's Global Health Institute. He said that when the federal government's response is as slack as it has been, you have states and local states, counties, and cities sort of pulling the federal government along, you know, kicking it into action. And I think that's what has happened here. I hope that's what will happen here. Yeah, I suppose on the one hand, with America's decentralized social system,
1: state governors and mayors of big towns don't have to wait to introduce restrictions. That said, such actions can be of limited use if the response is too fragmented.
2: I will say, though, that it's been, I hesitate to use the word entertaining because it's kind of horrifying. But Mayor Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, and Andrew Cuomo, the governor, have clear hatred for one another. And that's playing out in real time in the advice that they give to New Yorkers, where you hear de Blasio sort of seemingly ruminating out loud about whether New York might have a shelter in place order, then Cuomo coming back and saying, absolutely not, we are not going to have quarantines in the city. There's been conflicting messaging between the two men. And you'd really hope that the two of them could put aside their differences in this moment. It does seem that Governor Cuomo seems to have a clear lack of trust in Mayor Bill de Blasio's competence, and you're seeing that play out in real time in public comments, which is somewhat unsettling for New Yorkers.
1: Well, there may be a global health crisis going on, but we will still keep going with the quiz, John and Charlotte, you'll be relieved to hear. It's not going to be an archive quiz this week, because for the first time in 176 years, the Economist Weekly Edition this week went out without any of the journalists going into the office in London, which is where the archive lives. So we haven't been able to consult the archive. Hopefully, subscribers will get their paper copies of the newspaper or magazine as they normally do through the mail. But if you have any problems with the distribution, then it's a good opportunity to activate your digital subscription, which you can do by going to economist.com or going to the app. So the quiz. This week, I thought, Charlotte, as you mentioned Oklahoma, while you've been talking, I quickly devised an Oklahoma-themed quiz. Two questions for you. Oklahoma was written by Rodgers and Hammerstein. How many songs, no Googling here, I'll be able to hear your fingers tapping, how many songs did Richard Rodgers write in total?
2: In his life? Over the
1: course of his songwriting career, yes.
2: I mean, this is a question that I should be able to answer because I'm a geek on this, but it's going to be well over 100.
1: Go, take a wild guess.
2: Um, I don't know. 221. John Fassman. Uh, 592.
3: The
1: answer is 900. He wrote 900 songs. That's a weirdly round number, so it can't be exactly 900, but but uh, close to 1,000, which wow. is good going. Okay, one final Oklahoma-themed question for you, and it's about the state rather than the musical. This is pretty obscure, and frankly, I'll be upset if you get it, but... This is something that an architect who works in Oklahoma told me, and I've verified since. The Oklahoma governor's mansion has a few unusual features. Can you name one of them?
2: It has its own gas pump in the, I don't know, hmm. in the garage or something like that.
3: I like that. Did it have a tornado
1: shelter? You know, it may well have both of those things, to my knowledge. have the one that I was after... It has a swimming pool that is in the shape of the great state of Oklahoma. And if you go onto Google Earth, you can see this Oklahoma-shaped swimming pool in the the garden of the governor's mansion, which I just think is a magnificent thing. (laughs) That is fantastic. (laughs) Well, thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks, John that's all from us. Please give us a review and a rating on your podcast app. While you're there, you can also have a listen to The Economist Asks. On this week's podcast, Anne McElvoy interviews Ezra Klein about partisan division in the time of COVID. And if you haven't got a subscription to The Economist, you really should. We're all working flat out to make sense of the incredible global story we're living through right now. The link is economist.com slash pod 2020. Thanks very much for listening. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.